Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, I'm Zach Albetta, and this is Working Drummer Podcast. Today my interview is with Kevin Winard, whose main gig for the last 12 years has been touring and recording with singer Steve Tyrell. Kevin also fields a lot of freelance gigs from his home in Santa Barbara throughout Southern California. His past resume includes Doc Severinsen and Tony Tennille, with whom he got a lot of experience playing with Pops orchestras. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net, where you can check out past episodes and learn more about who we are and what we're about. And if you'd like to donate to the podcast, either on a monthly basis through Patreon or on a one-time basis through PayPal, you'll see buttons for Patreon and PayPal along the right side of your homepage. Patreon has some great incentives for you, corresponding to different levels of donation, but we understand not everyone wants to make that monthly commitment, so if you just want to throw us a few bucks in one shot on PayPal, we greatly appreciate that too. You can also follow us on social media and share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag WorkingDrummer. We're reposting those pretty frequently there. Lastly, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, and your ratings and reviews on those platforms are very helpful. These days, in-ear monitors are almost required equipment for working drummers. Problem is, a lot of them don't sound very good, and the ones that do are really expensive. Session Ace solves both of these problems with high-quality dual-driver ears for $99 and quad drivers for only $199. Using a hybrid design combining armature and dynamic drivers, the frequency response is as good or better than anything you'll find up to $1,000. And the accessory package that comes with every pair includes cable extensions, quarter-inch adapters, and a huge variety of ear tips so you're sure to get the right fit and feel. Matt and I have been using these ears for a few months now, putting them through the paces both live and in the studio, and I'd recommend them to any pro musician who needs full, clear sound in their ears but doesn't have a grand just laying around. I'd even recommend them to the cats who do have a grand laying around. Truthfully, I put off buying ears for a long time, and these saved me from having to drop a ton of money or getting stuck with bad sound. Visit sessionace.com slash working drummer to check them out, along with the other tools and accessories Sessionace offers. Once again, that's sessionace.com slash working drummer. So without further ado, hope you enjoy hearing from Kevin Winard. Where and when were you out last with uh, Steve? Um, just actually, God, why am I running a blank? I just came home. How, how is this even possible? <laughs> what the hell? No, I do that. Uh, I do that too. People are like, how was the gig last night? I was like, gig last night. Where was I? Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, we were in, in the Boston area, actually outside of Boston, North shore. Mm-hmm. And then we did, uh, actually Bay shore, Long Island. So Long that Island. was a couple of days ago. We came back. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And so we it, it was a little it was a little rough because we flew we flew the day what was it Thursday we flew Thursday and then flights were delayed because it was just the day after the storm mm-hmm. the big nor, big nor'easter right and then 
And we got in late, like around one in the morning or something like that, in the in the Boston, and stayed near the airport, and then did the show the next day at North Shore, which is like a a theater, like a you know those theaters that rotate. Oh yeah, they have those. You know what I'm talking about? A, like a theater in the round. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So we played there many times, and that went well. And then we, then the next morning, we had a flight to JFK, and then we were driven. It's about an hour out of out of there to uh, Bayshore, and did the show, and then the next morning we flew out of JFK to home. All right, so it was a little, it was a little rough. Yeah, flights in four days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's the kind of trip you usually do with Steve, right? You're not usually out for like weeks at a time. No, actually, it it totally varies. Oh, really? Com- completely varies. We can go, like we did a few weeks ago. Uh, we did we do this pretty much every year. The Colony in Palm Beach, mm-hmm. Florida. We do that for two weeks. Okay. And then we did, we've done the Carlisle Hotel, where I've done it for like the last 11 or 12 years, where this last one was five weeks. Wow. Yeah, in wow. New York City. Yeah. You, just, you just sit down for five weeks at the Carlisle Hotel? Yeah, unfortunately, I didn't stay at the Carlisle Hotel. <laughs> Steve stays at the hotel, but uh, but yeah, I... Uh, um, I had a steady gig for five weeks. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so you've been doing that gig for what? Ten years? Twelve. Twelve years. Twelve Man. years. Yeah. Same band the whole time. Pretty much. It the guitar chair has has gone back and forth. Okay. So um, it, when I first started it, it was Steve Cotter. Right. And do you know Steve? At I do. All? Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Great guy, great musician. But then slowly it it became um back to the original guitarist who's worked with Steve since the 70s and he does most of his arrangements mm-hmm. and co-produces co-produces most of his CDs. His name's Bob Mann. Mm-hmm. And he's uh he's old older gentleman and he lives in New York. Okay. Like in up, upstate New York. Gotcha. And another great musician, but he's also, it kind of makes sense because he does most of the arrangements. Right, you know? right. And and Bob's had a serious, illustrious career in the studio world. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's actually, you should Google him sometime. It's pretty, it's like, wow, he did that? He was, a, he was a guitar player on the first Brecker Brothers record. Whoa. Yeah. He played, <laughs> he, he played in a band called Dreams, which Man. was Randy and Michael Brecker. And Bob was a guitarist. And had all the, the uh, all these famous musicians. Billy Cobham was in the band at one time. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> we we always hang, and, and he has a lot of great stories about doing sessions in the seventies with Gad and and all that scene. You know, Man. he's done a lot of stuff. Really cool. Really cool stories. Um, and then the bass chair is primarily Lyman Medeiros. Right. Right. And uh, but he does not do the long extended Carlisle run in New York. Okay. So it's either David Fink, who's a wonderful bass player from New York, or Ed Howard. Okay, yeah. And Ed's a great bass player, and he was with 15 years with uh, an unknown drummer named Roy Haynes. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> yeah, that, that guy. Who's, who's still, and, who's still who's hanging who, out in the jazz clubs. <laughs> who will not stop and plays better than I could ever think of playing, and Dude, he's 93 years old. I saw him in Kansas City uh, 13 years ago. He was 80. Um, and I saw him at the Gem Theater in Kansas City, and I remember thinking, like, 
I mean, this this might be it. Like, this is probably the last time I'll I'll get to see him. And it was and, the last time I saw him. But I was just thinking, like, you know, he probably doesn't have that long left. And and thirteen years <laughs> later, he's still out there. That's it's, it's he's, amazing. He's still taking everybody's gigs. Yeah, the <laughs> right. The bastard. <laughs> Um, so uh, the fun, the funny thing is like the the, the Tyrell band is it's had horn players, you know, come like Blue, Blue Lou Marini, mm-hmm. yeah, from you know he does James Taylor's gig and a bunch of other stuff in the Blues Brothers. He's done the gig. The late great Lou Soloff used to do the gig with mm-hmm. us, and uh, another guy named David Mann, Ricky Woodard. I mean, we've had like amazing horn players. And the thing is, it's not. It's a jazz gig, but it's not really a jazz gig. It's a show, right? You, you know what I mean? It's right. it's like very arranged, yeah. And it's not it's not going to be a lot of blowing where you're just doing chorus after chorus. It's it's for the it's for the singer and it's for you know he's the artist and it's for the audience because it's that that's the type of clientele. They're not going to be hanging out at Smalls, right? The clientele to go see him, you right? Know what I mean, they want to so. hear the songs. <laughs> exactly. So, so, but hey, man, it's twelve years worth of work, and I'm. And I've been fortunate enough to, uh, he's got me on other projects, like the the last Kristen Chenoweth record. I got to play on that, yeah, you know, yeah. that he produced. Right. And and so, you know, just like, wow, okay, he hires me for other things, which is great. Yeah. So, so, so I had a similar um, experience with the kind of, like, pop jazz or, you know, the show gig. Um, I did a tour about a year ago with uh, the Equinox Orchestra that's based out of Savannah. Um, and, and we were out for like two months. But it, So it's a big band. It's like a little little big band. It's like 10 pieces plus a vocalist, you know, Harry Connick, Michael Buble kind of vibe. Right. Um, and the it was, it was interesting to play, you know, to swing, but to treat it more like a rock gig or more like a musical like you gotta you know you're you're playing jazz but you kind of got to turn your jazz brain off a little bit a little bit yeah um so was that was that an adjustment for you was that a struggle in the beginning no because you know it's funny i i i'm i'm gonna sidetrack just for a second i was i was listening at from i was taking a fly away and i said you know what i'm gonna i i listened to your podcast before but i I uh, I listened to the one with Kevin Canner. Oh yeah, and, yeah, and which is great. I right. thought it was fantastic. But I'm like, man, this guy is just doing it. I'm like envious and just I'm like loving his freaking passion. Yeah. And like you said, you can hear it in his voice and he swings like a motherfucker. He is a and, thoroughbred man. It's just like it's he's amazing. so great. Yeah. He's so great. And and he's dedicated his career to this. You right. know what I mean? And I, and I look at my life and I go, you know, I look back and I'm. I'm 53 now. I just turned 53, so I'm really fortunate that, knock on wood, that I can still make a living doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but my entire career has not been hardcore jazz. Right. It's. Ne- I mean, I've done gigs, sure, but it's never been like, oh yeah, oh man, he's going out with that cat. He's going out with that. Right. So for me, this is kind of like, yeah, no, this is kind of yeah. It's pretty much what I've done my entire life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, Outside of small gigs that you're doing, you know, for no money with with friends just to pl- just to blow and play, right? And and go for some stuff. But as far as like, you know, the big the big names, I've never done that. Um, I've always really it's weird. I've always ended up working out working for singers. Yeah, you, yeah. You know? I'm the same and, way. Like a lot of the jazz that I've played in my career has been behind a singer. Um, right. And I kind of prefer it. 
you know, for, for some reason, maybe it's cause I just, I grew up on, on pop and rock and, and the Beatles and I grew up on songs, you know? So me too. Um, but, uh, yeah, like I, it's, it's something I've been thinking about lately is, is the extent to which drum teachers and, and jazz education, like, you know, you do, you do deep dives into Tony and Elvin and, and, you know, the great drummers, um, but I, I really wonder, unless you're going to be a Kevin Canner, unless you're going to do that, like, unless that's your blood type, how many opportunities are you really going to get to exercise that, that muscle, you know, and, and, um, uh, you know, to, to what extent do you want to be able to do those, those kind of pop jazz gigs? Um, you know, and how, how do you cultivate, how do you cultivate the non-improvisational aspects of jazz drumming um, that you cultivate in every other style, like feel, time, tempo. Uh, you know, I think uh, a lot of a lot of drummers spend so much time developing vocabulary um, mm-hmm. that that you know stuff stuff that they pay attention to in other styles falls by the wayside in jazz drumming. Have you have you noticed that? In, in, in terms in terms of what exactly? Well, I mean, in terms of like. Um, you know they're they're so they're so focused on on uh, their vocabulary and interaction and improvisation that uh, the the basic stuff that is kind of focused on in other styles like the depth of your feel um, mm-hmm. or the um, the tone of your drums um, kind of is 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 oh, secondary. I, I, know, I know what you're saying. Yeah. You know what I I would I would think I would tend to agree with that maybe say 30 years ago 40 years ago mm-hmm. like in the like in the 70s in terms of the non non pop world with everybody's you know everything was tones or you know single headed toms right. or dead or dead sounds like eagles or disco or whatever in the studio but all the jazz players i don't think they were really like you said concerned with sounds or or or, or even like you know you could go back to listening to louis belson and the way he would play a straight eighth groove. It always had that lope of a boogaloo kind of, <laughs> right. or the way he play a bossa nova, he'd be swinging the eighth notes on the hi hat. You know that that I thought. You know back then I went, wow, that's you know it's cool, it's great, it's Louis Bosson, but it's kind of lame mm-hmm. in a way. You know what I mean? Because I'm like, he's not really diving deep into that genre of music. I think now with the advent of technology with YouTube, with, with just the fact that you can stream anything yeah. that younger players are, are diving into a variety of, of styles mm-hmm. so that, so that it's this cross platform that is not so defined like it used to be at tower records. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense where you have the classical section, you have the jazz section, you have the rock, you have all this. I think there, at least from what I'm seeing, there's just a slew of younger players coming up to play everything really well. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that they have they have studied the vocabulary, maybe not as deep as Kevin, but that they yeah, they could certainly yeah, they can play some big band, they can play some straight ahead and they understand what makes it swing and that the the focus is on the ride cymbal. Right. And that that they can oh yeah, I can play some Cuban stuff and I can play some some you know, I could definitely do some funk. Right. You know? Um, so I think I think with younger players, it's it's at least that's from what I'm seeing. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong about that assessment, but 
I just think that there's a slew of, of players that are coming up. Do you just go on? When the when the, when did they even have the time right. to learn all this? <laughs> you know, and it's and it's almost intimidating. It's like, oh my god, yeah. You know, but I think you and I are probably similar in that we grew up with songs. Mm-hmm. We grew up loving jazz, and but we grew up loving music. Right, right. You know, it's like I can get I can get so much enjoyment out of I just just the other day, and it's spot and funny. This, it goes back to that interview you did with Kevin, where I. After the interview, I put on, I'm like, you know what? I'm going to listen to some Cannonball <laughs> and listen to some Lewis Hayes. Yeah. And just, and, and, you know, could be, I think it was Winton, uh, Kelly on piano. And I'm like, oh, man, this just feels so good. No wonder I love Cannonball because his time is so good. He's yeah. just so grew, so <laughs> swinging, so swinging. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, this is fantastic. And it inspired me actually from your podcast to, to, li- to, to listen back to that stuff. And but I can be just as jazzed, pun intended, listening to a Steely Dan track or listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire or listening to something by some like killer hard rock band. Right. You go, wow, that's great. Right. You, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, that I mean that's kind of my point. Like I, I guess maybe I'm I'm projecting on younger players, uh, you know, and it's colored by the the journey that I went through. But now when I listen to jazz or when I play jazz what i'm what i'm turned on by and what i go for is what you're talking about the groove the swing like right. i could give a fuck about taking a solo <coughs> you know yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't need i don't need to just be lighting shit up behind the the tenor solo or whatever like right. i just want to swing i just want to hear swing i want to experience swing um yeah and for you know for some, even even kevin who is as deep into that as he is um he just wants to swing like his, his, right. his baseline for what he can do behind the kit is way higher than mine. But like his ultimate goal is still just swing. If it ain't swinging, he ain't happy. I, I, I agree with that a million percent. And, and it's funny. I keep going back to Gab. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, just there, there are so many, and I was thinking about what I was going to talk about with you, and it's, I, I'm, I'm glad we're kind of going in this direction. Well, this is my podcast. It's not up to you, Kevin. Well, I don't care. <laughs> then I got other. I got other big names to talk to. <laughs> so, uh, but but you know, I just keep going back to Gad. Of course, we're probably similar age, where we grew up kind of loving and admiring and listening to Gad and being influenced. Of course, he and Vinny and all the all the guys. But it's just like he's he's minimalized his playing a lot. In later years, yep. as we all can see, so but is Erskine, oh, who I just who I just interviewed. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's just everybody just they just want to make music that feels good. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. And I see these younger players that they have more chops than I could ever wish for, and it's astounding. Mm-hmm. But there's some I, I don't even know. I don't know if it's just my taste or. If because I've been thinking about this a lot, or it's just I'm older, yeah, and and I just go, that's great. They're phenomenal. It's and it's on some level, it's intimidating, right, you know, right? Like the gospel chop stuff. You yeah. just go, what the, fuck? you know? <laughs> and so and and I and I go, but when when it, then I start thinking because there's so many kids that are doing these videos that are with these blazing chops, and I'm thinking now. How would they be in a band situation? How would they be in a, in a studio situation if they're called to just come in and lay down a track and mm-hmm. make some music and come up with some parts? Yeah, 
and yeah. be musical, you know? And and I don't know. They might be great. I'm right. not making an assumption, yeah. but it makes me question. But yes, it's like I listen to Erskine. And I love his touch. I love his sound. I love his feel. Same with Gad. I'm just, all these guys, I just, I'm kind of getting to that point where it's just like, I, w- I always want to get better. Sure, I'd like to have some more facility here and there, but I want to, like, have this benchmark of, like, if I can be, like, 90% musical all the time. Right, right. And not just not just being a jerk. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know? Yeah. That's, I love that philosophy that Gad's always had, that he just loves to play and he wants to serve the music. Yeah. He's, like, he's, like, he's like the Magic Johnson of drums. Yes. Yep. Do you know what I mean? Totally. And there's something very honorable and soulful and deep about that to mm-hmm. me that that resonates. Yeah, yeah. I I came to Gad fairly late, honestly. Um and it, it was it was never that I disliked him. Um but you know, as as when I was younger, I was typical of the the kind of people we're talking about. Like I was more obsessed with chops, I was more obsessed with improvisation and and um uh, originality and 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 all this and you know the 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 older I get I'm 37 the older I get oh, okay. the more I'm just just like put me in a groove just please put me in a groove um, yeah so so the more I've I've gotten into Gad over the years definitely um, it's, yeah I've, I've I've heard I remember years ago I've heard some people that would you know like you go to the Nam show and it's just like have you ever been to a Nam show yeah a few. Yeah, it could be annoying. Oh, it's you know? it's intolerable. It's it's yeah. just a, an inhuman environment. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, you you could see a lot of people, and they're obviously doing a lot of chops and all that stuff. And it's it's just such a turnoff. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's just such a turnoff. And there's nothing wrong with having facility to pull off musically what you're hearing. Right. If it's coming from a place of sincere instead of a look at me, dig me kind of thing, and let me just show off, that completely will, will I think, with any anybody that has a modicum of musicality will, will turn them off. Right. You know, and they'll just go, yeah. I mean, if you're 13 and you're, you're trolling YouTube videos and, and, oh, he sucks, he's not Travis Barker or whatever, right. fine, right. that's fine. You're 13 years old, we get it. And you're supposed to be a punk at 13, we get it. <laughs> but, you know, when you become a professional musician... You got to play with those musicians, you right. know. You got to make music. Yes, and and, uh, and therein lies the difference between the music business and the drumming business. And right. We've you know we've talked about the drumming business on the podcast before, and don't want to take anything away from it because uh, you know a lot of players are doing a lot of amazing, inspiring stuff in the drumming business. A lot of students are learning a lot of amazing, inspiring stuff and getting excited about the drums, whether or not they're going to do it for a living. Um, but, you know, when it comes to dudes like us, um, I think the, the drumming business only has so much to to offer in terms of, you know, making a living, being a working drummer. Right, right. And with that comes an enormous amount of responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, for the music and for the people that you're playing I was looking over your bio and your credits and, and was surprised to, to see a couple things. Um, 
the the, the captain and Tennille jumped out at me. <laughs> not not just not just because it's it's the fucking captain and Tennille, but because I'm learned right now. I'm I'm playing a gig on Saturday with a, a yacht rock band, and and we're doing uh, Love Will Keep Us Together. Okay. So, and, <laughs> any tips? Any tips on Love Will Keep Us Together? You played it for ten yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, you know that that. That look out, look out, look out, look out, love. Yeah. That jackal, 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 jackal. That was always the hardest thing not to rush. Right. Yeah. You know? And because it, it just doesn't, the figure doesn't lay well at all. No, it does it, not. It, it's just a, it's, it's kind of a dumb figure. It just doesn't make it make any sense. <laughs> but so, I, I, you know, I tried, I tried to, I don't have any tips to play. <laughs> I don't know. What can I uh, I no, mean, I, I, I was, I was I just, sw- I was busting I your balls a little bit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I completely hook, line, and sinker fell for that. I'm such a dork. Wow. Um, but no, I totally agree about that. That fucking sixteenth note kick part. Just, I don't know why. It's, it's hard, in there. right? Yeah. It's and it's, it's stupid. It's part of the song. I gotta do it. I know. You know. I know. Um, so I, I didn't channel it. I didn't channel as much how Blaine is on the record. So that's right. all I'm gonna say. Right. But um, it it was a fun gig. I mean, it it, it was my first gig. I was going to North Cal State Northridge. I was 20 years old. Yeah. And actually, you want to hear the backstory? It's kind of it's kind of a decent story. Yeah, we're we're into decent stories. All right. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't want to you know I don't want to take the podcast in my direction. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) Um, So. I did this thing. My my parents were really supportive of music, and I was going to Cal State Long Beach for my freshman year. And uh, they said, "You know what? You're spending too much of our money, and you got to go get a job." I said, "All right." And they they said, "Hey, there's this Di- all American Disney program, and they're auditioning people." Right. And I went, "Okay, cool." So I did. It, I auditioned for it. And uh, it was the All American. The very first year they did it, the All American College Orchestra at Epcot Center. I didn't want to do the marching band or anything like that. I wanted to do the orchestra because it was like I had never been to Florida. I'd never been to Disney World. I'm like nine, you know, 19 years old. Going, this would be awesome for mm-hmm. summer. So I got it. I got the drum spotter. So it was like a studio orchestra, you know, strings, rhythm section, whole thing. And uh, I ended up doing. That and they had like it was over eleven weeks. They had twenty-two guest artists. Wow, would come through, mm-hmm. and we performed at the American Theater Gardens by the Shore at Epcot, and we rehearsed every single you know five days a week and did performances. And one of the acts that came through was Tony Tennille, mm. but it was her symphony show, so she had a symphony show completely separate from the Captain and Tennille. Yeah, where she where she sang standards, and all the arrangements were by Sammy Nestico. So. Um, and then Daryl Dragon came with her, with her husband at the time. They got divorced a couple of years ago. And so then they came, and then basically they had a, uh, they gave us a list of contacts for all the people we worked with at the end, this big booklet. And I was reading, it said, Daryl Dragon is looking for art for groups to, to produce. I'm like, oh, cool. So I had this thing with a uh, friend of mine named Matt Catengoob, and we had a pop band together, original pop tunes. And I'm like, well, I'm going to send him a demo and see if see if he wants to produce the group. So he calls me up, and uh, and and I was remember I was I, I transferred to Cal State Northridge. This is months later, after the summer and everything. I transferred to Cal State Northridge, and he 
calls me up and said, Kevin, this is Daryl Dragon of the Captain of Tennille. And I, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, he goes, I listened to your tape. I'm not really interested in the band, but would you like to audition? <laughs> and I said, sure. So I auditioned, and I didn't get the gig. Uh-huh. And 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 the, the 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 funny thing was I was playing. It was just he had me go to. He had they had a great studio called Rumble Recorders. Like if you look Google that back in the day, like mega mega rock acts recorded at that studio. Right, it's no longer there in Canoga Park, and it was a great studio. But I went there. He just played keyboards. I played drums, and I remember it just it just felt terrible. <laughs> because and later on I realized why because he has a. God rest, you know, God love him, but he has a tendency to rush. Anybody, any drummer's ever played with him knows he just pushes the time. He always wants things faster. Right. So it was, there was, the, once I got the gig, it was just like, no, I just smile and just, no, I'm not, you know. Yeah. Um, but, but, um, but so then I got a call from the, the road manager and like a couple weeks later, the drummer they had wasn't working out. He wasn't happy with him. They flew me up to Reno. They put me in the presidential suite at Harris, <laughs> and they gave me fifty dollars spending money. And, Fuck uh, yeah, yeah! And they said, "Don't talk to anybody in the band because the drummer can't know." So I went to watch the show. Oh shit! And then they and then they sent. So I just I saw the people in the, in the uh, casino and after the show, and I just I just kind of went back to the room and then flew home and uh, and then like a week later, I had to fly out to. Or a couple weeks later, I can't remember, all the way to Jamestown, New York, to play Chautauqua. Whoa. And and my first performance, we ran through the show during sound check, and then we did the show. And that was my first thing. So you just learned so, you learned all those songs. They like they gave you a they tape. Had, they, they they gave me a tape. I had charts, and I just went in and just did it. Wow. And live, you know. And then I was with them off and on for ten years. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. but it turned into what was really cool was. Was the captain of team? We did a lot of that. Did Vegas, Reno, you know, Atlantic City, all the that whole circuit, right? Um, state fairs, you know, all that stuff. And this was eight, 1985, so their last major hit was "Do That to Me One More Time," which was 1980. Mm-hmm. So they were still pretty well known, right? Right. So I got a little taste of that kind of, you know. It wasn't. Ooh. It wasn't a nostalgia act yet. No, not yet. <laughs> it came. It came nostalgic. Right. And so then. Um, yeah, then it turned into doing symphony shows uh, with Tony mm-hmm. years, a few years later. And uh, and I got to play on a couple uh, big band albums with her. And, you know, it was just, and, and they, they were the nicest people. I couldn't have asked for nicer people. The guys in the band, I'm still dear friends with them to this day. Cool. The, one, the second keyboard player ended up becoming music director for Johnny Mathis. He's been with him for like 24 years. Wow. Man. Yeah. And so yeah, just from from that one gig, it just went went to a lot of contacts. And stuff. Right. Cool. And you you mentioned symphony shows, like you you did a bunch of symphony shows with Doc Severinsen too, right? I did. Yeah. Um, I um, that was through Tony. I was doing a a symphony gig, and to, and Doc was a conductor hmm. with the Baltimore Symphony. Yeah. And Doc was a guest conductor in Seoul, so he did his show, and then he conducted Tony's show. And um, we all hung out, and it turns out I found out that Doc didn't live far from me. I live in Santa Barbara County. He was living at the time in San Inez. Hmm, yeah. And so if you ever saw the movie Sideways. Yeah, that's one, yeah of my, that. I, it's one of my favorite movies. I love that movie. <laughs> me too. Top, top five. Yeah. 
Yeah. But uh, anyway, so then Doc, I would see him on flights. Hmm. Like, because we fly out of Santa Barbara Airport all the time. He was going to do his thing. I was going to do my thing with Tony and Daryl, whatever. And then I got a call from his road manager to uh, to, su- to to sub for his regular drummer at the time, Dave Mancini. And I did something in San Diego with the symphony. And then Dave was leaving the band. And it's, uh, it's always been these weird things. Like, Tony Tennille was taking a hiatus, and she was going to do Victor Victoria. She was going to do a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. So I was going to semi-retirement. So I'm like, oh, great, I'm out of a gig. Yeah. Then Doc calls, right. and I get that. And then I do that for six years. Then he reti- then he's retiring. He went, he went into retirement. He, still, he since went back to work. But that was 2005, and from there, I got Steve Tyrell. Right. It's just like all kind of like went one from one gig to another. Man. But, Doc, but Doc's gig was fun because it was... It was all symphony stuff. Right, right. All across the country. And talk about playing drum set in a symphony orchestra. Because mm-hmm. that's, uh, you know, I think some <laughs> some drummers find themselves in a symphony orchestra for whatever reason, and it's it's a different animal. Um, so what uh, what <laughs> what adjustments did you have to make there? Oh, boy, yeah. It could, I mean, <coughs> excuse me, um... It's it's tough. I mean, it's not easy. Certainly depends on the on the you know the the music that you're playing, and especially if you're doing some up tempo stuff, and you got the brass basically fifty feet behind you, right? You know, and they're they're all everything's going to be lagging. It's just it's one of those hard. You got to muscle through it, but you also can't be that insistent. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to be a little flexible yeah. because. Um, the one thing I know, like, especially if there's like a, a downbeat kind of thing, you know, like if a conductor goes like with us, we, you know, they just go boom and you're going to be right there with them. Yeah. An orchestra's just going to take a breath. Yeah. They're going to have that, like on a ballad, like there's, say, there's a verse out front with piano and voice and the band's going to come in and the orchestra's going to come in on downbeat. You have to kind of like, when that conductor gives that downbeat, you got to just, you got to just sit back a little bit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You kind of, you just, and... And there were times, you know, with Doc's conducting could get a little weird, to be honest. And <laughs> and I would just go, boom, here it is. And I had so many symphony members go, thank you, so glad you're here. <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and, and I would sometimes I'd look back, you know, I just kind of look back to have some eye, eyesight with the brass or with some of the string players. Yeah. And I just go, you know, here we are. Right. And I, I just tried to make things obvious. I certainly didn't do anything. You know, I didn't get into like doing any weird like interpolation of of, of just going to throw anything off. Right. I made things very very obvious for an orchestra. Yeah. Kind of dummy proof. Right. Right. Because I figured you know there's eighty to one hundred musicians that got to follow this, mm-hmm. and and it's my job to make it as easy as possible for them. Right. You know, I'm not saying I'm done, I'm not going. I'm not doing that, but I'm not doing too much crazy stuff you know right. what i mean I'm, I'm i'm setting up the figures and and i'm just i'm giving downbeat sometimes when especially when the time would get a little weird if i felt it like you could feel the beat separating if it's an up-tempo thing i just give crashes mm-hmm. you know like every eight bars is like here's a crash here's a downbeat right you know right just just to go here it is guys. yeah you've, you know? you've got to be the bridge between so many 
uh, islands. <laughs> like, you know, there's, yeah. there's, there's the bridge between the kind of instruments you're playing, right? Because a giant string section, like, not, not only do they take a breath before downbeats, like you said, but mm-hmm. their, their sound just takes longer to travel. Like, it's not as immediate. You're in this big room. So, like, you have to be a bridge between that. You've got to be a bridge between, um, you know, your little rhythm section, like, you know, the artist and the piano-based drums people that he brought right. along. So you've got to be a bridge between, you know, that core group and the rest of the orchestra. And you've got to be a bridge between these styles. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it was easier with Doc's thing than it was with Tony's thing, because a lot of times with Tony, well, most of 99% of the time, oddly enough, because of budget, she wouldn't carry a bass player huh. for the symphonies. So it would be somebody in the orchestra that played bass. Oh, Lord. Some jazz. Ooh. You know. But luckily, all of her, most of her stuff was medium swing. There was some up stuff. It was never like, you know, 350 tempos or whatever like right. that. Thank God. But um, there was a lot of ballads. And, I mean, they, the, the arrangements were beautiful. We had a great conductor. Rusty Higgins was a phenomenal conductor. Mm-hmm. So he made things very clear with the orchestra. You know, well, that helped. But, yeah, there were times with, with bass players would be like, oh, man, this is rough. You know, like, I just can't, I just, I'm just going to watch Rusty. I'm yeah. just going to watch a conductor. Right. You know, and, and with Tony's show, I was set up in the back. Mm-hmm. Now, with Doc's show, most of the time I was set up, I was set up near the podium. Right. That's what I've seen most often. Right. So, right. It just depended on the, on the act, you know. Um, and it's just, it's it's one of those things that's tough. Uh, but you get used to it. And, and with Doc, he was principal pass conductor of four different symphonies. Right. So we'd come, come to those cities four times a year. So these musicians trusted me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. So I became friends with these people. And they, they knew that they could rely on me for helping them out, mm-hmm. you know, and making things clear when sometimes the conducting would get a little strange or, you know, Doc would have his trumpet so loud in his monitor that he wasn't hearing the rhythm section and so much reverb that he's falling behind the time. Right. You know, so sometimes it's just like, oh, my God, what the heck? You know, right. It's like I, I go, Ugh, why does this one note feel terrible? <laughs> you, know, so, you know, so so I. I yeah, I mean, you, you just you make it work and sometimes you just go, OK, I got through that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, there's never, there was never any train wrecks. Thank, right. thank God. Right. You know? Um, so yeah. And at that level, I mean, you know, there, there rarely are in, in our lives anymore. Um, yeah. you know, they're, they're always little minor, minor skids here and there. I'm trying to, exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the last time I had like a, a full on train wreck on a gig. Uh, and it's, it's been a while. I won't. I won't waste time trying to think of it. Why? Why try to remember that sad shit? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Lyman is is just a, a gem of a player and a gem of a dude. Um, Lyman Medeiros is the bassist in in the Tyrell group with you. Um, but it also seems like apart from that, you know, you're with him a lot doing other other projects. Yeah, he's one of the busiest guys in L.A. You know, it's funny because he didn't he didn't it's been many years since he's gone for five weeks or seven weeks or whatever it's been to New York to do the Carlisle. He's really established himself 
in LA Mm -hmm. and he's working like almost every single night. Mm -hmm. Now I'm, you know, um, so I, I, outside of the Tyrell thing, we don't do that much. Actually, he just called me for a session the other day, which I did with him, which is, which is fun. Got to play some rock and roll. Nice. For, for, you know, for somebody. And I got to bash the hell out of the drums and that was fun. It's always fun. Um, Always fun. (laughs) Um, you know, so we, and we've done record, definitely recording projects together for different people, um, different singers and, and, and such. Uh, but yeah, he is working a ton. Yeah. He's working a lot and he's, he's, he's really sounding great. He's really, really improved in the 12 years that I've worked with him, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, the thing I like about him is that he really gets a huge sound out of his bass. God, he does. Yeah. It's a massive sound. It's like big, big, big big quarter note right you know, which yeah. is fun i mean that makes it fun i there's been it's funny you bring up bass players it's, it's a pet peeve of mine i just i tend not to like bass players that don't dig in yeah you know yeah. i've seen you know i've seen bass players either they're playing electric or they're playing uh you know or, or acoustic but there's there's like no point mm-hmm. you know what i mean there's no percussive point to their downbeat, to yeah. their quarter note, you know, we can just go. Boom, you hear that? Yep. That 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 tonality of the finger, you can feel the. I'm not saying you got to pluck the hell out of the string, but but there's there's a lot of bass players that just where where it's just kind of like a their time feels like a it's it's fine, it's like it it is metronomically correct. Yeah. But there's no there's no drive, there's no forward motion. Right. And it, it feels like a wet noodle. Yeah, I know what you mean. Do you know what I, you know what I mean? Yeah, me where it's and just like every note where it's just like, ding 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 ding. Instead of, yeah, you know, yeah, we just yeah. got that, you know, and it, that makes you makes you want to not necessarily even play harder, but it makes you have that that uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's well, rooted. It's rooted. It's commitment, but there's. There's, uh, this is the word intention. Yeah, I, talk, yeah, yeah. I, I found I found this with like young drummers, when they like just say just play four quarter notes on a cymbal, mm-hmm. and and they and they just go bing gang and and I said okay, now look where your hand is, and look where your stick is. You're not even thinking about where you where you're placing your stick on the cymbal right. to get the prettiest sound. Right, right, and you're not even caring about what you're doing Mm -hmm. i said you should always care and that's the way i feel about bass players right it's actually the way i feel about any player yeah yeah on any instrument yeah you know there has to be there has to be intention behind it right yeah you know it can be it can be complicated and it can be simple it doesn't matter right there has to be a commitment and a passion this is to what to what you're doing. This is the point I was making earlier about about you know playing jazz versus playing other styles, and it's it's it, it's intention. Like if if I'm now when I'm playing jazz, I I really try to play with that kind of intention and and um, a, a consciousness about how how does the sound I'm putting out feel, not mm-hmm. not just like what is the effect of my content. You know how is how is this vocabulary coming off? But you know how how is this making everyone feel? Um, right. And and I think it's you know it's it's a blanket statement to say that's missing in jazz. But I think it's it's not it's not as um, 
it's not as paid attention to in, in jazz as it should be. Um, but the ca- the caveat would that be that would be I mean if you really listen to the greats and you listen to Elvin and you listen to Philly right and you listen to their feel right that's undeniable that it's there oh absolutely it's there with them I'm I'm saying the guys you know what that, I mean the guys that are studying them now and I was guilty of oh. it too when I was a young drummer like you you focus on the content you don't focus on the feel it's like when uh, Jason Isbell did a great interview on on WTF. Um, and uh, they were they were talking about how um, the blues has kind of gotten bastardized because it's easy. The blues in its in its you know in its purest form is a simple, accessible music, um, and because of that, any bar band can play it. And, right. And Isabel said, uh, you know, I I feel like a lot of bands and a lot of musicians have missed the point with blues. The the simplicity is not the point. The simplicity is an expression of the humanity, and the humanity is the point. Um, That's deep. That's very deep. And I thought I, I I thought of like the flip side of the coin with jazz. Like, you know, what people pay attention to in jazz is the complexity, but the complexity is an expression of the humanity, and the humanity is the point. Well, uh, to to that, and I will completely agree. Why is Kind of Blue one of the considered one of the classic, classic? go-to records for jazz of all time. Right, because it's simple. If you, it, well, if you listen to Jimmy Cobb, he's hardly doing anything. Right. But yeah. it's so fucking good. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, you, you listen to this and you go, this is a perfect record. Yeah. This is an absolute perfect record. You can, you can listen to this as a hardcore jazzer and go, yes, it's still relevant today. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and anybody that would go, yeah. You know, some some college jazz snob. Then you got to punch him in the throat because right. you're an idiot. <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. What, what else do you want? Yeah. And 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 then you can get people having a party and put it on in the background and have some nice red wine mm-hmm. and have some pasta and listen to Kind of Blue. Yep. It 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 transcends genres mm-hmm. and it transcends taste because it's completely and utterly soulful. Yep. If that makes sense. Yep. And there was so you much know, intention behind it, like you said. Every every single note on that record has intention. Yeah. Every single record. Yeah. Every single note. And and you know it's funny. It's like like I will. I'm not as critical of drummers as I am of singers. Mm. And so what I hear today in a lot of up and coming jazz singers is they're so preoccupied with wanting to scat. Mm-hmm. Or so, or singers in general in doing pop, they're so preoccupied with doing, wanting to do a ton of American Idol licks, right? Or and the voice licks. And, and before going, before we go down this road, we should just say that you you know from whence you speak because not only have you played behind tons of singers, but you do plenty of singing yourself. Yeah, I do. I do singing. I did a little CD, uh, which is actually if I could do a little plug, plug away. That's cool. Okay, it's called Kevin Winard sings. It's on iTunes, and I. I it was actually a, a project that was thrown in my lap. So mm-hmm. I, I played on some of it. Another drummer played on And these are tracks that were done with this guy, uh, Peter Clark, you know, years ago. Mm-hmm. And he, he, he said, hey, I remember you sing. You want to come in and sing? And, and pick out 20, 20 tunes you want to do. And I picked out the best 15. And uh, I just went in with the engineer and just did vocals for two days. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah I, I want to do, I really want to do something that's mine at some point, you know. Um, and that's... Just takes money, yeah. You know, 
but I yeah. want to I want to do something. But yes, I do enjoy singing, and actually, I have a gig coming up in at the Mix in Pasadena, singing with Quinn Johnson, who's the MD for uh, Steve Tyrell, and Kevin Axe, who's a great bass player. Oh, Kevin is another just murderous bass player. Yeah, we we grew up to. I mean, I, he used to be my roommate. Really, I, I've known him since 1985. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So for for those for those who aren't hip, Kevin Axe it's probably best known for playing in the Tierney Sutton band, right? Yeah. Speaking yeah, of we, amazing singers, like check out the Tierney Sutton band, check out Kevin Axe. Ray Brinker is just a great drummer in that band. Ray's one of my favorite drummers on the planet. Yeah. He's so amazing. Yeah. Talk talk about intention. No right. matter what he plays, it could be it could be doing straight ahead rock and it could be doing big band and it could be doing small group. It could be he's just such a great musician. Anyway, yeah. I digress. Yeah. But so Kevin and, and Quinn, and we're doing this gig April 29th at the Mix. Cool. And I'm going to be singing and playing. So that'll awesome. be fun. Awesome. Um, so you, yeah, were, you were saying how, like, you, talk, you were talking about younger singers. So Yeah, they're just, they're, you know, they're, they're just, they're, especially, especially, I'm talking about in the, in the Great American Songbook thing. And, yeah. And, and the, that genre, because that's where I worked with Tony. I worked with Jack Jones. I worked with, you know, I worked with Steve. I worked with Vic Damone, you know, so I know I've worked with some, some of the great, great singers Mm -hmm. and, and I've been exposed to what makes it work and what doesn't, you know, and, and a lot of them, it's like too much of a good thing where, (laughs) where in the sense that especially on a ballad, you know, you, you got to be able to sell that lyric. You got to be a little bit of an actor. Right. And, and you got to actually give a shit about the lyrics Mm -hmm. and when you're doing when you're doing something up tempo or medium swing or whatever you know it's still look at the lyrics and and understand the lyrics but also really work on your feel Mm -hmm. (laughs) learn how to swing you know have time have groove and don't worry about changing the melody so much you know i mean to me it's like if you if you want to if you want to learn how to sing then listen to the greats. Listen to Sinatra. Listen to Nat King Cole. Mm-hmm. Listen, listen to and 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 listen to uh, Ella, of course. But everybody wants to immediately, especially female singers, they want to start scatting immediately. Right. And I and I tell them, nah, don't worry about it. Yep. Just just learn to sing the melody. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Just sing the melody and and sell the melody and swing and just be musical right i i lived you know? in i lived in kansas city for seven years and uh one of my one of my best friends there is a, a singer named shay estes who i played with all the time and when i first started playing with her um i noticed that she she did what you're talking about she had no interest in scatting she sang the melody she that you know she swung that's all she did and i i went to her i was like I, you know, I really, I really dig that you just, you stick to the melody, you know, you don't, you don't go all over the place with scatting. Um, I was like, why, you know, why do you do that? So many other, so many other singers are trying to like make these songs their own. Like, why do you do that? And she said, well, I, I just don't think I can come up with a better melody than Johnny Mercer. <laughs> Bingo. Bingo. You know? Yeah, Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's and that's very mature. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's fine. It's fine to have maybe you know work out some lines, and if you've got a guitar player, and then you want to scat along with those, do like a soli line, you mm-hmm. know, like a like a kind of a sax soli kind of thing, but with guitar and voice. Right. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. 
you know, as long and, and make sure that the, the the harmonies that you're singing and the, and the lines you're singing are going to work within the chord. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I want to um, ask you about like the intersection of of singing and and time and rhythm because I I realized recently that um, whether in the pop world or the jazz world, I think the this this the iconic singers that up and coming singers idolize. Um, get you know they they idolize them i think because of their because of their tone because of their power because of their range um but uh, i think that what made so many part of what made so many iconic singers great is their time and Absolutely. their and their groove and and up and coming singers don't pay attention to that Absolutely i mean you you listen to Stevie yeah it's like come on yeah but it, you know he's a mu- he's a musician's musician but but yeah, the way he sings, and he can throw lyrics away and sing out of time and come back. But he's aware of what he's doing at all times. Right. At all times. Right. You know, and Al Jarreau was another one of those. You know, mm-hmm. um, even you know, even if a lot of people maybe they didn't like its tone, but nobody could deny that his time wasn't astounding. Right. I mean, it was just so so, so pocket. Yeah. And but all the great singers, you're right, and it could be in rock and roll, it could be pop, it could be. In Certainly funk, yeah, you know, and jazz. I mean, just listen, listen to Nancy Wilson singing "A Sleeping Bee" with Cannonball. Shit, yeah. I mean, the way she's phrased, Dinah Washington. You know, yeah. the way she phrased, it was just like, and Ray Charles, the way Ray would phrase mm-hmm. on 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 a swinging thing, right? You know, I've been like, be, he, he, because he of the, sing really back, but he'd sing really far back. But that was his thing. He knew what he was doing. Right, right. And I, like, because of the gigs, some of the gigs I've been doing lately, I've been digging into like '70s and '80s rock, and I'm I'm listening to Huey Lewis and Freddie Mercury, oh. and I'm holy shit! Like Freddie Mercury had the best time in Queen. Like everybody else in that band was kind of all over the road, and Freddie Mercury was <laughs> was like the he, voice of reason, tempo wise, in that band. He was a Astounding mm-hmm. in every sense of the word, and I, that's right. I remember you and uh, Kevin were talking about Huey Lewis in the news. I loved Huey Lewis in the news. Mm-hmm. The, everybody in that band, yeah, Bill Gibb, Bill Gibson. Oh my God, right. incredible drummer! And the way Huey sings is so in the pocket. Right, he sings so percussively. It's like yeah, funky. It's, it's funky it's, all on its own. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that's what makes all of that work. Mm-hmm. And I agree. I think. I think time rhythm all of that stuff is something we all strive to be better at certainly i do you know yeah i'm not perfect but i i certainly want to be as best as great as i can but it that is what makes music work yeah yeah. from that's that to me it it has to be that's the basis of everything then harmony then pitch then tone and all that stuff comes on top it has to come from time for because time is what speaks to everyone yeah, rhythm is what speaks to everybody in every single culture. Right, obviously. Right, and and when things are grooving, you know, I don't care if it's a freaking polka. <laughs> if the polka's swinging, anything can swing. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like I pl- I play a lot of Brazilian music, and the Brazilians they talk about having that swing. It's you know the Brazilian a, swing. It's a totally different talk- swing. It's, it's a different swing, but they're talking about just grooving. Mm-hmm. You know, and and. You know, it's all the same stuff. Mm -hmm. The genre doesn't matter. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com 
Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. Is there a way that you've found as a drummer to kind of encourage a singer to to pay more attention to that or to kind of help them along in that regard? Yeah, I, I just from reading articles in, uh, with other drummers in Modern Drummer over the years, I'll just completely simplify my playing. Mm, yeah, I'll just play quarter notes. Right. Bang, bang, bang. And that, and it's like, if you can't hear this, and if you're not listening, then you're really an asshole. <laughs> you know what I mean? Then you're just a jerk. You're right. not listening to anything. Right. But yeah, I, I will And I would do that a lot with the symphonies, you know, mm-hmm. going back to that. There's times I would just simplify, man, just two and four on the rim and quarter note, or, or four on the rim. You know, yeah. if it's good enough for Killer Joe, it's good enough for everybody. You know, Grady, <laughs> Tate, Grady Tate, it's good enough for everybody else. Yeah, man. But yeah, so so I I think I think that's something that comes with experience. You know, where it's like, and it's also just kind of being like a being cool and being a nice person. You know, if somebody's having some trouble, and if you can help them out to make things feel good, then then that's your job. Right. You know, goose goose them along and. And you don't have to play louder, but you just you could simplify and just focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, focus on the quarter note. I mean, I saw Erskine play. He he messaged me on Facebook because when I was at the Carlisle, he goes, "Hey, uh, um, do you mind if I play your kit? I got a I got a night a second show we're doing after your show with Steve. Seth MacFarlane's coming in to do a show." Mm. I said, "Sure." I said, "You want to use my cymbals?" He said, "Sure." Okay, great. So he he played and he played the show beautifully and medium there's one really kind of up-tempo thing but there was he played very musical and mm-hmm. very beautiful there was nothing that would make you go oh my god you know like like going down to smalls or something or right. one of those clubs where you're right. going oh god i want to quit but everything he played was absolutely perfect yep for the gig yep and that is the mark of complete maturity, mm-hmm. and and his brush playing was stunning as usual, and <laughs> and and he, he, they're just you know playing some medium sting, and he's just he's he's going, bang 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 bang, yep, and that's it, yeah, and I'm like, and and Chuck Burgoff is playing bass, and I know Chuck, and Chuck's great, uh-huh. and I'm like, well, and Tom Rainier's playing piano, and Dan Higgins is playing sax, I mean it's a great, and uh, I think it was Graham Decker on guitar, and I was yeah. like. Well, that's it. Just feels great, and yeah. that's why Seth uses him. And there's a million people that Seth could call in L.A. Right. for that gig. Right. You know, he's not an unknown person, and uh, but he he loves what they what they bring. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's and that's that's actually the right group. Yep. And it's a right rhythm section. Peter you know? was in cool. Atlanta uh, a month or six weeks ago, and he did a he did a clinic at Emory University and some performances. And and there was a section of his clinic when he he played. Uh, one of the Seth MacFarlane tracks that he had he had recorded, um, and he talked about how like the first few takes it was like a big you know shout section in the middle of the song, lots lots of hits and the horns and whatever, 
and and they did a couple takes and and he was doing you know kind of these fancy setups for the for the horn hits and for whatever reason it just wasn't he wasn't feeling like they really they really got it so he he demonstrated this like he had kind of the the tracks playing through without the drums so he demonstrated you know some fancier setups and he said so the next take I just did this and he played it again and he just played time like if he if he played a setup it was like a single note Ow, you know, yeah. Uh, and most of what he played was just ding, 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 and the horns are just going ape shit, you know, with the big hits and the big screaming shit. But, uh, but the way Peter just like stayed home and held everything mm-hmm. together and was the adult in the room for that section, it just it made everything, you know, come together. Just like a glove. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because there, uh, you know, if you listen to a lot of early Sinatra recordings, like in the Capitol years, and those drummers, I don't know, if it was Alvin Stoller or it was John Van Olen or you know, or Mel Lewis. Mm-hmm. It could have been back then because Mel was in L.A. back then. But a lot of those things, those drummers are not kicking figures. Mm-hmm. They're playing just two and four on the snare. Yeah, and just just driving it home. Yeah, and that that you know, when I started listening to that stuff. Because I grew up listening to Buddy Rich, you know, when I was a kid, I was a buddy, buddy freak, right, and right. I had a lot of fast singles, and and that was kind of my thing. And I want to play fast, and blah, you know, and um, and Buddy's great, but I actually, since I've gotten older, I, I appreciate Buddy more, but for an even different reason, right? Which I, which I'll get into, but um, coming from a more musical, not less flashy reason, yeah, but. But I, you know, so I, I got turned on to that stuff with the Sinatra stuff. And I'm like, man, these figures are flying by. The drummer's not even kicking it. And then I started realizing how hip it was. Yeah. Where it was like, oh, it's just making it just go. Makes you, it makes you want to go, fuck yeah. Right. You know, it's just like, to me, there's, there's two, two classic examples of that is Luck Be a Lady. The classic definitive luck be a lady mm-hmm. with Sinatra, mm-hmm. with the you know da, 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 with the verse and all that, yeah. and I think that's Irv Kotler on drums. Well, there's two, 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 two or three tracks that that I'll that I'll, I'll point out for me. They're just like amazing. That's amazing. Luck be a lady, and off. Oh my God, what is it? Uh, it's it might as well be swing. It's um. Wives and Lovers. Mm. The tunes normally was done in three, but they did. And it's Sonny Payne, and all he's doing is playing time. Yep. And it, I'm telling you, Spotify that after this interview, and you're just gonna you're just gonna start smiling. <laughs> and and the way Harry Sweets is just playing behind him, playing these chord notes on his trumpet. It is the swinginest thing ever, right? And I and I try to play that for you know students and go, do you, do you get this? And they're like, <laughs> it's like, they don't get it. I'm like, dude, dude, yeah. this is so fucking they, swinging. They it's won't they won't stopping. get it for a while. They won't get it's it for a while. Stopping. There's nothing. It's, there's nothing yeah. you can do. It's, it's <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's just so plant, plant the seed, and in 15 years they'll be like, oh yeah, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And then, um, and then there's another track. This is off of "Strangers in the Night," which is the last album I think Sinatra did with Nelson Riddle, and it's Irv again. And they do "On a Clear Day," this really slow swing. Mm-hmm. 
and and he does this press roll. He does this press roll. It's like da 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 and it is so deep in there and he hits the first he does the first like two three he hits three with a snare and the bass drum yeah and it's it's short right but both notes are short both like the horns are playing bop bop yeah but he does beat four with bass drum snare drum and crash cymbal Hmm. So it's like, bop, <laughs> and it's like, and that setup. Listen to that, "Strangers in the Night" from that album, Sinatra, and it's on a clear day. And listen to the shout chorus. It's that one bar yeah. that is just—it makes you want to jump out of your seat. <laughs> it's just—it's like that's a, like that intensity of Gad. Remember when he did that that Buddy Rich thing yeah you know with Weck with Weckle and Vinny yeah and and they were all fantastic but there was something about Weckle doing I mean Gad doing that that shuffle you know that whenever that medium up shuffle he does and he does this big big open roll and it goes right into the right into this offbeat hits off eight note hits and then goes into the solos you know the sax solo Mm -hmm. and it's it's like the most makes again makes you want to just jump out of your seat right yeah that that sense of drama yeah you know i mean that's that's the that's the thing that that that's amazing that drums can can do mm-hmm. where it can be with again coming back to intention you know it can be one or two notes and you just go wow right and it's so like, it's so like accessible it's, it's so accessible you know who has that Steve Jordan yep. has that. Yeah. Where he just everything he plays is complete intensity. Right. Complete commitment. And you mentioned jumping out of your seat. Like, you know, there there are times when Steve Gadd jumps out of his seat on one of those yeah. big notes. And like people who don't play drums see that and that energy is just immediately translatable. Like playing yes. playing like that from the drumming standpoint is not super complex or you know it doesn't it's not exciting for our drum brain but for an audience like that kind of energy that kind of intention is just immediate well you know but and also but i think i think with gad it's 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 and i'm not saying that you're saying this but it's certainly that's how he was feeling it right you know what i mean it's not coming from oh wow people are gonna get excited it's like no this is who he is Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. is exactly who he is and that's his intensity Mm -hmm. you know if you if you watch if you any any video you ever see him play he never looks bored right (laughs) he's completely 155 million percent committed to every gig he ever takes yeah yep and and somebody like a clapton or james taylor that's and and of course chick that's why they hire him Mm -hmm. because they i mean you know, there's nothing worse. We're going I'm gonna get into another thing, but there's nothing worse than than working with. You know, you get a musician and it's like, oh yeah, well, we're just doing this gig, whatever. There's nothing worse than that. Right. I you agree. Yeah. It's, it's it's like, I, honestly, at this point, I'd rather stay home and watch Netflix than hang out with that. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. Yeah. Or playing my, my Nintendo Switch. I'm not <laughs> kidding. I, I would rather just hang out or just have a nice dinner with friends. Right. Than Slept my drums to something with that and get that kind of attitude and just go, why, why am I 
good. That's disheartening. I'm the same way. I, I want to smack people sometimes, and it doesn't happen that often, I should say. But but you know, on the on the occasion that you do get on a gig with that dude, it's like, man, we are getting paid money to play music in front of people. What the fuck do you have to complain <laughs> exactly. about? Like, right? You know. Um, I was I was talking in another interview about how sometimes I feel like my my uh, my bar is too low um, in terms of just being happy playing a gig. Like maybe I'm too easy to please. <laughs> but uh, I don't think so. I think that's a great that's a great thing. I yeah. mean, you know, I, that's why I'm I don't take it lightly. You know, I mean, I'm looking at my summer and my summer's pretty bleak, honestly. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, it's that up and down of being self-employed, right? Shit! I got a. I had a great six months, and now it's like, eh, yeah, I'm in panic mode. Let's teach some but, lessons. Let's play some restaurant gigs. Let's <laughs> whatever it is. Hello, everybody. Go on Facebook. I'm back in town, and you know. But yeah, when you get to play with great players and 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 make some music, it it shouldn't matter what you're playing. Mm-hmm. It really shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And you know, you know, there's a this this bass player Ed Howard. I want to get back to him. You know, I I. He did Roy Haynes. He did Wayne Shorter. He's done a gig with Herbie. He's done some series with Shirley Horn. You know, Man. I mean, Karen Allison. Really serious stuff. Uh, Bob Berg, mm-hmm. one of his one of his his guys that he plays with all the time. One of his best friends is Gary Novak. So it's yeah. like, okay, you know, I try not to think about that and just try to get it out of my head. Because <laughs> Gary Gary's freakish right right. and freakishly musical yeah my god um but i had a a conversation with him one time i said man you know it doesn't matter what what you know you're you're doing this gig here he goes you know what i'm here with you guys and i'm here working with steve Mm -hmm. and and this is what i'm hired to do it doesn't matter if i played with blah 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 dave kakowski and al foster the night before Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter I'm here now. Yeah. And and that's the way he approaches every single gig. Mm-hmm. And you hear it in his playing. And it's like every note he plays has that point, has that intention, has that just commitment. And it's just it's even even in you know when when um hold on, I got a like I'm getting a spam call, sorry. Oh, sorry. Right. Uh but you know it makes you want to play. Yeah. And it, and it's it's you know you can get one or two guys in the band that have that thing, mm-hmm. and it makes you want to play. And it doesn't matter what it is. Literally, it could be a polka gig, right? And it, it makes, literally could. It and makes it, you like, want to be that have, guy. Yes, yes. And it makes you go, well, shit. You know, okay, I'll go back and shed. You know, I'll go back and shed my shit that I can't play in the shed. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna do any disservice to any of these other musicians because they're too freaking good right and i don't i don't want to be that guy that ends up looking like an asshole right, right. you know or a schmuck so yeah it makes you want to play every note like it's your last and it could be a ballad and you, you're playing pretty and i'm gonna play pretty on this tune and that's mm-hmm. my you know yeah and that, that's the thing i do love about the, the, the tyrell gig is that the musicians in the band they're all so good mm-hmm. and none of them fly it in ever right they're all playing and they may have an eight bar solo but they're playing eight bars man yeah seriously yeah. and it's like if you if you know if we're ever in the area and you come see the show you're gonna you're gonna go yeah man that's a good show because everybody's we're all playing with heart mm-hmm. and, and 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 i'm not tooting my own horn bug by this but i was just blown away but about three years ago t- do, do you still have time Are you yeah cool? yeah i'm good okay 
okay, everybody else is going to be bored as shit. But anyway, so, <laughs> but uh, um, about three years ago, Tyrell and his girlfriend got in a day early, and we were going to play Scholars in Cambridge, you know, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And um, they went to go see James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt. So, and Steve knows everybody, and he knows Gad, and he knows all this stuff. So he got to the show, went backstage, he invited Gad and Carol, his wife, and Walt Fowler and his wife to the show the next night. And I'm like, and Scholar is a small, I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's a small jazz club. Mm-hmm. And, and then talking to John Allen, the, the real manager, and he's like, yeah. And Steve's like, did you check? Did you check Steve? I'm like, Steve, who? You coming to the show tonight? And then John goes, oh, yeah, Steve Gatt's coming to the show tonight. I said, yeah, fuck you. Right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, no, I'm not kidding. I said, what? <laughs> so anyway the point was he came to the show i met him before the show he goes hi i'm steve i'm like yeah i know you are. yeah right <laughs> and couldn't have been nicer and he watched the show and two things that that two things that i noticed i mean he was set up like behind quinn the piano player off to the right probably about 20 feet from me like mm-hmm. off to the side First solo, uh, first song we're doing is called "What a Little Moonlight." And the arrangement has a sixteen-bar drum solo. It's just the first song, uh, uh, first song of the night, you know. Right, where, right. Okay, okay. Whatever. So I, I do this. We do the show, and then like about about three songs in, I can finally look over to him. Mm-hmm. You know, because like the first three songs, I'm like, just don't, just don't look over. <laughs> just, 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 just play. Yeah. And all the guys, you know, all the guys in the band are looking at me like. Mm-hmm. Right, you right. know, I bet Lyman especially was like, oh, yeah, Check Lyman that was just, <laughs> yeah, Lyman. And, you know, and we just, and so I look over at him, and him, and he sees me, and he just gives me one of these. He's like, my dad, just very encouraging. I'm like, all right, cool. Gave you the thumbs very up. Nice. Gave me the thumbs up. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> the, the listeners can't see my thumb. Um, uh, first time, first time doing a podcast, and so. Um, uh, I, I went up to him afterwards and I shrugged my shoulders as I nervously tripped over one of the cables coming up to him near the piano. And I go, well, and I shrugged my shoulders and I, and I, and he goes, and I, and I kid you not, he goes, let me tell you something. You guys are the real fucking deal. Huh. And I, he goes, you guys are pl- up there playing with so much joy. Yeah. And I'm like, oh my God. He goes, I loved it. And and he, he you know was so complimentary. And the other thing that I noticed that makes sense to to who he is as a, as a musician is that you know how people will talk during a show. Mm-hmm. You know they'll like reach over to their wife. They'll say something. He was he had his leg one leg over the other, and he was like had his hand over his his mouth, kind of like you are, and just kind of like you know how you're concentrating and you're looking at something. And he watched Steve. He listened to all the jokes. He watched the band. He didn't say one word to anybody the entire hour and a half show. Hmm. He was just focused yeah. on observing everything. And I was blown away. I'm thinking, he's going to be bored. But <laughs> he loved it. Right. He absolutely loved it. And then we, we hung out in between sets, and the, all of us were hanging out. And he, he couldn't have been a more gentle, genuine, humble person. Mm-hmm. I've... And that set the benchmark for me was like, you know what? If any other drummer, hot, hot shot drummer comes up and has an attitude or whatever, because, you know what? I don't care. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm just like the legacy and the body of his work and what he's contributed to music. And 
he's this nice? Yeah. Really? Right. You know, it was just, it was astounding how, how genuine he was. Yeah. And just fun. And it must and, have, it must have been a lesson for you because I mean you were you were so focused on on the content of your drumming um, and what he loved about your show and what he noticed was the joy that the band exuded making music together. Exactly, and that's what he yeah. does. That's what he does behind the drums. Exactly, exactly. It was just it's one of those okay bucket list for me. I got to meet Steve Gadd and I got to play in front of him and he kind of liked it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not going to, you know, it's not going to change my, my retirement plan, but right. Hey man, great. Yeah. You know, it was, it was just one of those as a drummer, mm-hmm. you, you get the drum geek out every once in a while. And that totally. was one of my moments. You yeah. know, I'm just like, oh, this is so cool. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was very, very fun and very, I felt very fortunate to be in that situation. During the Erskine Clinic, he uh, talked about bad habits in drumming and how no matter what age you are, even at his age, he's still very conscious of bad habits that he's developing and trying to figure out ways to get rid of them, overcome them, you know, whatever. Um, And, you know, he he actually called out one of my bad habits, which is, I guess... He he called it out because it's common among drummers. But to start like when they when drummers play brushes, all of a sudden they start doing tons of like splashes on the hi hat. Like instead of chicks, you start doing psh on the hi hat, which I'm totally guilty of. I do that a lot too. Yeah, think of it. Yeah. yeah. Um. So so he busted me. He didn't bust me personally, but I was like, "Yep, that's one of mine." Um, what, now, what, no, I'm, I'm asking, was that was that for a ballad or for? In general, in like he, you know, he demonstrated how like you know you're playing playing time with sticks. You got nice tight chick hi hat thing, and then you pick up brushes, and all of a sudden you do you know your hi hats just go soupy. Um, and oh, I'm, okay, I'm totally guilty of it at at all tempos. So meaning like you like you know ding 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 ding. You didn't yeah. like splash on two or, or four or something. Yeah, like that? yeah, and just kind of like it's. I think it's an insecurity thing. Like the the more sound your hi hat makes, the less naked your brushes are. <laughs> you know. Oh, I see. Now, are you doing that just on occasion, like like doing like a little bomb kind of thing? It, or? I'm doing it too much. <laughs> oh, okay. Instead of, I'd, I'd, I'd have to hear it to to to. to yeah, like in, instead of instead of just keeping time with chicks on two and four. For some reason, you know, my hi hat just starts doing more than two and four, and a lot of splashes. Just more legato. It's it's less time and more just weird soupiness trying to cover up, you know, my insecurity about my brush playing. Oh, okay. Um, but anyway, it you know it got me thinking about about bad habits in general. So what what are uh, one or two of the bad habits that you've noticed recently in your playing? Um, I actually went through a really weird period for like a number of years. I never had the problem that I had it. Then it kind of came a few years ago and hopefully I think I got a handle on it. It was a weird thing where like I felt out of balance between my right leg and my left leg. Yeah. Where I, you know, if I was playing really hard, I couldn't keep my left foot moving. Hmm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I just felt like I kind of. What the hell? I'm always I'm always fussing with seat height. Yeah, me too. Because I'm five six. Mm-hmm. So, so it's always like sometimes I feel like, and I wear glasses as you see, and the the depth perception between like how high and low my snare is or tom or cymbals, that always 
messes with me because I'll sometimes I'll just take off the glasses to kind of give it because when you put on glasses things are closer right you know like by like it almost seems like an inch hmm. you know so that that mess with me for a long time that and then and then the and the and the and the leg thing and so I just got back in the shed and just started working on stuff trying to you know get back to whatever bad habit I was having and it was like almost like this phobia it got it really got in my head it was weird yeah i can't even explain it no i and had the, gotten, i had the same thing better. really I, I had the same thing with uh, as it relates to seat height and and like the balance between your right and left leg i had this weird thing that still shows up once in a while where like my right hip will get really stiff um and wow. it's it's cuz i'm cuz of how i'm playing the kick drum um and you know the heel up versus heel down and just like holding all this tension in my right hip um that that doesn't need to be there you know it's interesting i i i took one lesson i want to take a bunch a bunch more because i haven't had a chance to shed it uh with joe labara mm. and joe's like one of the most elegant drummers for jazz yeah. i mean you ever, you ever you ever just watch him play it's just like talk about sound and tone oh yep. my god and swing and just he's so beautiful and his ideas are so fresh yep um, but he plays everything pretty much heel down, mm-hmm. you know? So, so like his hi-hat, he even got him, he's saying, yeah, you're chicking a little too loud. Hmm. Like, really? Weird. Because I'm, I'm used to, the thing is like with Tyrell, a lot of times he, he wants you to dig in. He doesn't want it to be, he hates, he hates the idea of anything sounding loungy. Yeah. 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 You know? So, so a lot of times I would chick chick harder than i needed to and i you know i do that with big bands too because mm-hmm. i did a lot of big bands so i wanted the, the hi-hat to be heard so it's that's a fun an adjustment sometimes you know i i still i go back and forth between heel down and heel up in a variety of settings yeah. you know um it just depends on the situation um and i don't think there's a right or wrong i just think it's a it's a preference thing um but uh but I did try that. So, like, like with certain things, and, and definitely if I was playing soccer, I just, oh, I'm going to play heel down. I'll play heel down on the kick. And, uh, you know, just on, on certain things and just uh, trying, at some times, just trying to play softer. Right. You know, just play softer. And the, the thing that I, that I keep, it's always a challenge, but I always want to be as relaxed as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's tough, you know. Sometimes nerves can get in the way. Uh, whatever. There's a variety of factors yeah. that obviously they get our nerves. You know, I, I'd find that like I'm completely relaxed during sound check, and then showtime, I'm like, there's just a little bit, little bit of, it, you know, yeah, yeah. not terror, not terror, but I re- I'm aware that there's an audience out there. I'm aware that okay, this is show, it's showtime now. Yeah, you know, and uh, I've been trying to get past that mm-hmm. where it's just like it's okay, be be willing. To make a mistake, be willing just to be loose, right? You be, know, be in and, the moment, be in the moment, and let it happen. Yeah, because that, obviously that's the worst. You know, especially if you're doing a show, kind of a similar show all the time. If you get in your head, that's the worst thing that can happen. Obviously, right? You know, you can be your, your own worst enemy. Um, it's funny. I was watching uh, this documentary on Gary Shandling last night on HBO. Oh yeah, it's a two two part thing. You should check it out. It's great. And and they basically go through his diaries of of a lot of stuff that he would like affirmation stuff and, you know, just relax. And first appearance on the tonight show, just, just 
be Gary. Don't try to, you know, just he's like reaffirming himself. Right, you know? right. And he, I mean, he was relentless with this stuff. Yeah, he, and know? he was heavy into Zen Buddhism. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, there's there's just stuff that I physically can't do where I don't have the independence to do. You know, I'm not going to be El Negro. I, I know that. I'll right. never be that guy. You know, God bless him. I'll just never be that. Yeah. I could work on that stuff very, very slowly in the privacy of my own place and mm-hmm. and, and then throw the sticks against the wall. You know, <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it would be, it'll take a long time before I start trying to do that stuff on a gig. You right. know what I mean? Right. But it's interesting I, what you said about just just finding a way to stay relaxed because every yeah. every gig is going to be different. When I was when I was messing with my uh, right foot technique and my seat height, um, you know, I was I was fucking with heel up and heel down and burying the beater and letting it rebound and different right, tensions right, right. on the pedal and different seat heights. And I finally realized like there there is no formula that is going to work for every single situation that's what i was trying to find i was trying to find this sil- oh, this you know this silver bullet combo of of factors and i finally realized like there is no silver bullet you just have to have you know these different techniques and these different adjustments at your disposal use them in the moment in the way that feels and sounds right and find a way to just stay relaxed doing it that makes sense. Yeah, I'm I'm always trying to find that silver bullet too. I'm like, I think we're a lot alike. Yeah, in, in, in that we're just like, God, how do these guys do it? And they they look so relaxed. Right. right. Well, yeah, okay. That guy's sitting higher. Maybe if I do that, you right, know, right. I, I, I think we're all kind of neurotic like totally, that. Totally, totally. You know, and it just fucks with your head. You're just going, God damn. And then you're just going, I just suck. I just suck. <laughs> fuck this. I just fucking suck. I'm never going to. My body is broken. I need a different one, please. <laughs> I just, yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, yeah, I think, uh, well, it's nice to know that I'm not the only one on the planet that goes through this. Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> um. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I, I, I watch like, uh, like I'll, I'll watch certain drummers that are playing soft and I just see how relaxed they are. And, and and I'm just I, I keep thinking about tone. I'm thinking about sound and and just trying to trying to stay relaxed. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never been one to get totally, totally tense. Right. But, you know, there's certain situations that are a lot of pressure gigs and it's that's hard. I mean, that's there was uh, I remember I did a gig a couple of years ago with Steve March Torme, who's Mel Torme's son. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, OK, this is going to be. Yeah, it'll be easy. It'll be you know a lot of uh, medium, medium swing because you know I'm thinking of the stuff that Mel, Mel did with uh, Marty Page work, Marty Page deck hat and all that stuff, and Lulu's back in town and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, it's gonna be nice swinging. First tune out of the gate is like, you know, with with a big band. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And we're we're playing at this theater, and it was like, oh my god. And there was there was at least, at least three or four really fast tempo stuff uh-huh. you know and i got through it i got through it and there was i mean notes and notes and charts and and the band you know it was like pete christie's in the band <laughs> alan alan kaplan i mean all these like heavy players john bell's the guy's playing bass who's great yeah this is arturo sandoval right and john's right. the nicest guy too and I'm just like, Jesus Christ. You know, I'm used to doing, that's the thing about Tyrell. He never does anything that fast. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I, just, I said, I just, I made a joke. I said, guys, I'm great at 120. <laughs> so, you know, I just made a joke out of it because I'm like, 
oh man got got through the gig but it was like it was um, and i'm just being completely honest i mean there's i want to i need to work on that muller you know i see like ulysses owens jr you know bing ding 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 that that 400 and they're yep. relaxed yep and i i could never get it i gotta get to, i i know the, the guy to go to is my friend Aron safati mm, uh, yeah yeah we're really good friends and i love him to death and he's kind of like my doppelganger because we're both bald. <laughs> and, uh, um, but he showed me one time I was, I was at the Zilzin thing in, in LA and, and I, I still never got it. You know, there's a lot of guys that naturally get it for me. It's just, I just can't, it's that drop thing, right, you know? Right. Yeah. I know, you know, it's kind of, it's a molar thing, but I want to get that down, you know, mm-hmm. just to, just to, because if I get called to do that stuff that I'm relaxed and then, not muscling it too much, right? You know, right. And so, but that I, that was a stressful gig. I remember that gig, I, and it was I was two people. I was working with Debbie Boone doing her show, which I played before, that, which is all big band stuff, and Steve. Mm-hmm. So it was a co bill. Right. And let me tell you, man, we ran through everything. The, his book, her book, had like an hour for for dinner, hour and a half for dinner, change. And do the show, yeah. and I was I was exhausted afterwards. I'm, I'm like, sure. <laughs> oh, damn, you know, just it's just one of those. Oh, I know, this is too much. Yeah. this is too much pressure, man. And it's it's funny how like you know if if you're in a gig like Tyrell's for a long time, it's a show. You learn the show. It's you know you develop that muscle memory and you just do it yes. every night. And then you find yourself on a gig where you have to fucking work. <laughs> it's and, hard yeah it's hard yeah and and honestly i mean i think there was a side of me that got a little content mm-hmm. and a little lazy yeah you know and uh so those other chops kind of went went away a little bit and i've been i made a i've made a concerted concerted effort the last couple of years to like all right yeah i don't want to be caught with my pants down right right you know and uh, I'm in the same place. Know, yeah, I'm in the same place with jazz in general right now because uh, the you know the last few years, especially since coming to Atlanta, um, I, I really haven't been playing a whole lot of jazz. And and when I do, I I notice some. It's it's rusty, man. There's there's some shit that I used to have that I do not have anymore. Um, yeah. So I gotta I, I gotta get it back. I'm I'm embarking on this uh, re reconnection <laughs> with, yeah, no, with my jazz and, hands and, yeah and and you know there's uh, that's the thing is those those guys back in the day that's all they were doing right you know right that's all elvin was doing and philly joe and those mm. guys they were that they were jazz drums mm-hmm. and that's what they did i think i honestly think i think it's harder now you know because you got you got to make a living, yeah. and you got so many directions where you're pulled. And I and I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. It's like God, I wish I could just take a year off of life <laughs> and just shed, yeah, and just study with all these people, yep, and just and just get back to when I was like ten years old or fifteen and had all this time in the world and no responsibilities, no financial responsibilities, and just study. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to go to Brazil and study this. I'm going to go to Cuba and study that. I'm going to go to West Africa and study that, you know, and how great would that be? You know, but we have that challenge of commerce versus art and, and, and to, we have to feed ourselves and others, you know, and make a living. And I, the the one, I think the frustrating thing, I mean, I think music business and music in general for me, 
it's like I consider it like a marriage. Yeah. Like like there's really amazing, astoundingly great, beautiful, wonderful things about it. And there's things that just absolutely completely suck. Right. You know? And 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 people that that always say, Hey, you know, you're so lucky to do what you love. Yes. Yes, we are lucky. But it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. I mean, it's a hard hard business mm-hmm. and it's and sometimes it's a thankless business and and schlepping your drums through the kitchen and doing a four-hour wedding that you don't <laughs> want to do this thing and then and you, you know i mean we've all had these things where you've done like some gig and you might be a tv thing or you did something and it's like wow that's cool and the next day you're playing a wedding and then they're telling you to play softer right and 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 those same people that if they saw you on tv would treat you completely differently yeah if they knew that you were on tv mm-hmm. you know what i mean but because you're hired by them, they'll treat you like shit. Right. Right. You know. So we, you know, we all we're we're that that level that we're not always doing all the dream gigs. Yeah. You know, and we're we're in the trenches. Yeah. That's why what what your podcast is about? You we're in the trenches of of man. Sometimes it's just shit, and it's <laughs> it sucks, and you're like, why am I at this age still doing this? Yeah. You know, and. And then there's other times you have experiences and you play some music with some great people and you're going, that's it right there. And it's not even about the money. It's yep. just, it's that artistic satisfaction or, wow, I just pulled off something tonight musically in a, conce- a concept that I didn't even think I even had in me. Mm-hmm. It just kind of came out yeah. from listening to something else I heard five years ago. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've had those moments mm-hmm. and you go, well, that's it. That's kind of why I do it. Yeah, totally. You know? But it's, I think it's harder today because there's so many different styles of music there's yeah. so many different demands and I, I i there's there's certainly not as much work as there used to be right you know you don't you don't have hotels that have five nights a week of of bands playing top 40 right it doesn't happen anymore they have mm-hmm. sports bars mm-hmm. you know in the 80s i was working for 75 bucks a night driving all the way to orange county Five nights a week at a Hyatt in Long Beach or whatever, yeah. you know, Oof. and and I did drove back and forth, putting thirty thousand miles on my car, yeah, because that's where the that's where my I got the gigs, and mm-hmm. I you know singing and playing some percussion or playing some drums. I just went with the work, yeah, you know, and yeah. now that work is gone, right? You know, so and, you do what you do what you can. Like sometimes I think you know the music. It's interesting you talked about the music business is is like a marriage because it you know also in a marriage some sometimes you get to do what you want uh, sometimes you do what you can and sometimes you do what you have to do right you know um, and I think no matter what level you're at um, that's that's the case you know no matter probably since since my twenties since my early twenties um, you know my my career has progressed and the the level of you know the level of gigs that I've done I think has been on a slow steady incline, um, but you know I, I look at guys that are light years beyond me and they deal with the same shit like the same psychological gain the same kind of um, uh, challenges whether it's the people you're playing with or the people you're playing for or uh, scheduling or family life or like it you know it's all the same hustle and everybody is juggling the same shit no matter what level you're at. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. You know, and I mean, look at look, watching that documentary, going back to Gary Shandling. It's like, look at him. He was on the top of the world, co- co- you know, 
guest hosting the Tonight Show. He had his, his he had one show, it's Gary Shandling show, mm-hmm. and he was completely stressed out and just so just losing his mind. Mm-hmm. Be, you know, and people, every comedian would be going, "I would give my eye teeth to have that." Right? Yeah. You know. So yeah, you you ne- you never know. You never know what what somebody else is going through. Yeah. At whatever level they are. But, right. But yeah, it's like a marriage, and it's like. Uh, I mean, the one thing that, that stood out for me that's been amazing, that, that I will say that I'm completely grateful for, is I've had the chance to travel the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, I've been to like 26 different countries. Mm-hmm. If I chose any other profession, unless I was rich, I'd never get that opportunity. Yep. Ever, ever in my life. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Would I like to have some more money? Sure. <laughs> but... You know, I have had some amazing life experiences where most people that just work at a desk job never will ever get. Yeah, it's true. You know, so that's that's pretty fortunate. Yeah, yeah, pretty cool. Can I do one real uh, post uh, thing? Can I just can I promote our podcast? Yeah, yeah. That that Lyman and I have. That's right. I meant to ask you about that. Um, I'll just. uh, It's called All Over the Map, Mm -hmm. and it's on iTunes and it's on Podbean. And we we're certainly not as as frequent as you. We have twenty six episodes over the last three years. Mm-hmm. But uh, it it's basically it's a, we took this the Seinfeld theory. It's a show about nothing. So <laughs> all we all we do is we just bust each other's balls. Usually, talk about food, talk <laughs> about talk about music, talk about and it's it's we try to do it where we're traveling a lot. Right. I was going to say it's kind of attached to where you are at a given time, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. And, li- and because we we do a lot of repeat business with Steve Tyrell, we've done a lot of things in the same place like, "Oh, we're here again" or whatever like that. Right. But but it's it's funny and you know, it's it's honest and uh I'm I'm generally pretty self-deprecating as you could tell. So, <laughs> I'm just me on it and he's him and we and it's just it's just basically two guys that are just Busting each other's balls and having fun, right? And but we're musicians and we talk about music and talk right. I was going to say it's, gigs and it's kind of a sessions. snapshot. It's kind of a snapshot of of traveling for gigs, right? Basically, yeah. that's it. It's just you know, it's just like it's like it's a working musician being on the road, yeah. You know, and and just uh, you know what happens. Yeah. So it, it was actually Lyman's idea, and uh, so but I I I write the copy on it. I do the editing of it. And uh, and I host it, and I uh, actually wrote the theme song, and I do the voiceover of it. Oh, cool! So, so yeah, check yeah, that fun. out. Yeah, it's, so it's called All Over the Map, and we have a fun time with it. So nice. Yeah. Well, man, hey, man. I am so, go ahead. I'm sorry. It was it was great talking with you. I'm glad we got got to do this finally. Yeah, I'm I'm so honored. I mean, the the list of people that you have on this podcast, I'm like, wow. When you you know when you approach me, message me on Facebook, and I'm like. Wow! Thanks. I'm sure. I, yeah, you man. Know, so it's a complete honor. One thank of the cats. You so much. Well, thank you, <laughs> thank you. And I hope to meet you someday in person. I know. I lived in L.A. for five years, and and we never we never made it happen. I know you're up there in Santa Barbara. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, next time I'm out west, or, or next time you're coming uh, to Atlanta or, or anywhere near it, let's let's definitely try and uh, hook up. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. We'll see you soon, hopefully. All right, buddy. All thanks. right. Be well. One of the cats. I really enjoyed talking with Kevin. I hope you dug that too. He's traveling pretty regularly with Steve Tyrell, so be on the lookout for him. And if you're around Southern California, I'm sure you can check him out sooner rather than later. 
Thanks to our new sponsor, Session Ace. Once again, go to sessionace.com slash working drummer to get yourself some of those ears. Come on back next week for Matt Krause's interview. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and thanks to you for checking us out. Cheers. Cheers.